When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, AI can be very creative. We know that right now. It's going to be very creative. There's this myth that it's not creative. Well, it's very creative. But it's, it's creative in a different way. And we're going to use that creativity. There'll be designers and other people who will use the creativity of AI. But it's not going to be creative in the way humans are creative. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Kelly, founding editor of Wired Magazine and author of The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. You should listen to this if you're interested in knowing what's driving technology and what our future will look like, why artificial intelligence, or AI, is the biggest thing since electricity, yes, electricity, and the ways humanity, this means you and I, will interact with technology, AI, and how this will change our lives in ways we can scarcely imagine right now, both good and bad. And last but not least, how technology will actually make us better humans. So enjoy this one with Kevin Kelly. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some of our top episodes and the AOC toolbox where we discuss topics like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the United States, you can text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com. Also, at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes. All right, here's Kevin Kelly. First of all, the book I read, which I really enjoyed, it's cool to look at predictions for things because me and my, my girlfriend, who you just met, we like to say, wait, in the future, this is probably going to be different, and here's how it's going to be different. And it's always really simple stuff, and seldom do we think, and then it's going to be like this, and then it's going to be like that. Uh, we kind of predicted, for example, that self-driving cars will obviously be ubiquitous in the future, but the kind of late 21st century gun nuts, if you will, will be the people who say, I have the right to drive my car, even though the accident rate is so much higher. And they'll have arguments like, well, it's safer because humans don't make the same mistakes that this AI does when it comes to deciding how many people to run in into right, at the right, same right, time. Right, right, right. Would you say that you have a, a science of predicting no. First of all, most of what's going to happen in the specifics, like a product or a company, is totally inherently unpredictable. Sure. There's only a, another set of larger scale, larger level forms that are in any way inevitable. And those have to do with the fact that any technology, including digital stuff, runs on physical apparatus. And the physics of this sort of governs these recurring patterns. And my job is sort of to look for these reincurring patterns. And I look for the ways technology wants to be used in the sense of it's not being supervised. So it's mm -hmm. like how criminals and outlaws use right. it, how kids use it, how the street uses it. And that gives you a little bit more hint of its kind of natural tendencies. Thanks for leaning into me right, right, right. when you said criminals and outlaws. Right, right. I appreciate that. That's exactly. good for the brand. <laughs> At the street. Yes. Yeah, right. Morons use it this yeah, way. Right. <laughs> and um, 
it's these unsupervised ways that reveal sort of the underlying tendency or leaning sure. that technologies have. And they all have leanings. They're biased in certain directions. So what I'm looking for is the biases in technologies. And the biases, uh, to give you, you know, an example, is like copying, right? And so the thing about the internet, it's the world's largest copy machine. Sure. It wants to copy everything. If it can be copied and it touches the internet, it will be copied. Okay? Right. And so the bias is to copy. It copies, your computer is copying just in a day-to-day basis. When it goes across the internet, it's being copied thousands of times. That's just how the thing is set up. And so companies like music companies. Right, who want to others, resist who want to trend. resist. They're going against the grain because the bias is to copy. And therefore, I say this tendency for copy is inevitable. And if you want to work with the grain, do something assuming that things will be copied which is what we now call viral videos. Viral videos, yeah, viral anything. Viral anything. It's like, okay, we're going to take advantage of the fact that there's this bias. And so if you're working against it, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to just postpone things. Absolutely. And so there are other biases. And my job was sort of to say, what are some of these other biases in digital technology? And, And this has to be really tricky because if you look at, I'm a former finance guy, and that talk about a profession that pretends to be able to predict something right, but right, can't right, predict, right. that's it. What's different about the mental models that you use versus, say, someone who is purely speculating on securities or trends in, in the market? Yeah. Well, first of all, again, I, I go back to the point is that you can't predict the specific, the particulars. Those things are much more of the immediate ups and downs sure. that day, trade day traders are trying to predict. And that is inherently stochastic. It's, it's inherently just random. And so if you're trying to make money that way, you have to have a much bigger view, much bigger framework than just trying to predict whether things are going to go up and down. Sure. And so I don't do that. I think it's not even possible. And and we know actually from the studies of finances that it's very hard to beat the market as it's a whole. pretty much impossible. impossible yeah. right, for a long term, more than just a few right. quarters or years or decades, but for the long term. Everything kind of evens out. And so I'm interested in those long-term trends. And so I'm not trying to tell you whether the iPhone 7 is going to <laughs> succeed or whether you should have an right. Apple Watch or whether is Google going to be the, the dominant player in two years. Those, I think, really are inherently unpredictable. Sure. This completely makes sense. And I do think, though, over my life, and I'm 36, so I assume you're a little bit older than that. I don't actually know. But when I was younger, I'd seen things like Yahoo come out. Or even before that, I think I was using Gopher or something to find things on the internet. I don't even think that was a search engine. I think it was just a menu that some college kids had whipped mm-hmm. up. And I told my dad about it. And I said, look, you can search for things on the internet. And I think it was AltaVista or Yahoo or one of those early search right, engines. Right, right, right. And I said, dad, you've got to look at this. You've got to check this out. And he said, oh, that's kind of neat. You can find information. And I said, can we buy stock in this or something because he was my dad bought investments in stocks and Ford and things like that and he said well I don't know I'll have to look and I kept bugging him I kept bugging him and he found some technology companies that were working with this stuff and I said let's buy stock in this because then maybe we can sell it when I go to college and he said said Jordan everybody's just going to the library there are libraries everywhere not many people are going to use this I know you think it's cool but not many (laughs) people are going to use this not Uh even people don't even know how to do it right right I thought yeah, maybe you're right, but I feel like they're onto something with this, this whole search the internet thing. Right, right, right. And uh, I constantly joke with him about this because he, he remembers Yahoo, it too. Really. It was Yahoo, I think. And he, he remembers it too because I told him later, I said, you know, Tesla, they're going to redo batteries and they're doing yeah, electric yeah, cars. Yeah. And he went, 
Well, I don't know. And I said, remember the Yahoo thing? And he went and he bought a bunch of shares of Tesla. And it went up and he called me. He goes, Merry Christmas. I think you just made like 80 grand. And I was like, I told you. Imagine what we'd be driving in, you know, yeah, right. if you'd bought that Yahoo stock. We'd be having this conversation on your jet. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah, I mean, we, looking back, it's always hindsight is that way. But I've been wrong about many, many things, including, like, say, virtual reality, which I had the privilege to try out in 1989 and earlier. In fact, I organized the first virtual reality public access, we call a jamboree. It was called the Cyberthon. For 24 hours, you could buy a ticket and try all the VR that existed in 1989. What existed in 1989 in the VR space? The whole thing. The goggles, the glove, social, more than one person in. It was pretty good. Wow. But I thought it was going to happen like in five years. Right. The problem was it was equivalent of $1 million today to set it up. Right. So it's... It was just way too expensive. Like the head tracking... Uh, all that technology, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Today, it's a $3 chip in your phone. In your phone, sure. Which it does accelerometer and, and, sure. and all that kind of stuff. So that's why we have it now. That's why we have VR now is they took all these technologies, which are now chips in your phone and put them into the headset. And now we can have commodity consumer oriented VR. But I thought it was going to take only five years in 89. Right. So I was totally wrong in that sense. But I mean, if you're going to be wrong... On VR, getting the time frame wrong, a very forgivable kind of thing, especially looking at where VR is now. I've got some Art of Charm program graduates that are really in the VR space, and they said something interesting, which is, oh, we're not experts in VR because no one is. And I thought that was a really cool comment because usually people can't wait to brand themselves as experts in something. And they said, look, nobody even knows what this stuff is going to do. It's just all of us enthusiasts know that something's going to happen. And it reminded me of when I thought, these guys with the search thing are yeah, onto yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. They know it's there. They're just trying to put the pieces together until something takes yeah. shape. Well, we don't really even know how VR works on the brain. The curious thing is kind of recursive is that the main tool for understanding and how we can get better VR is VR itself. VR is kind of like the biggest brain tool that we have. And we're going to discover things about ourselves through virtual reality. By using By, by using it and making it better. And the thing that I like to emphasize about VR, the reason why I think it's so important, is that what you get inside of VR is an experience. When you take it off and you come back out and you recollect what happened, you don't remember seeing things. You remember feeling them, experiencing them. And the real typical demo for VR for first-timers is you put the goggles on and then they show you're in a room, and then they drop off half of the room right in front of you, and you're now standing on a ledge that goes a mile down. Whoa. Okay. And your brain knows that you're just standing in the room, but your body, your other kind of lower brain, is is in panic, and your legs are shaking, and you're backing up thinking, I'm going to die. Even though your brain, you keep saying, I'm just in the room, I'm just in the room. What it is, is the VR is working on a different part of your brain than the conscious huh. visual side. Sounds a little bit like LSD or mushrooms, from it, it what is. I've read. Right, 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 right. <laughs> exactly. And so yeah. it's an experience. And so what you're getting is that when you have a virtual character there, this avatar, your avatar right now today may not be exactly 100% photorealistic like you, but it's giving you eye contact. It's your voice, and it has all your body language and, and all the little <laughs> mannerisms and the micro-expressions on your face. And so what you feel from that is that you are there. Even though I know that you couldn't possibly be sitting in this chair, I feel as if you were really there. 
I feel as if this virtual thing is there. I feel it. And that feeling is transferring the internet of information to the internet of experiences. And that's what we're going to get with VR, is that we're going to have the currency is, is experiences, and the internet will become this internet of experiences. And experiences are, by the way, one of the few things that we can't manufacture in a commodity way, making cheaper and cheaper. Right. And so experiences are things that we're going to be paying more and more for. We're going to move our economy to an experience economy, and this is where the jobs will be. If you want something huh. that's going to be manufactured, you give it to the robots as a commodity, but experiences are very, very human. That's super interesting. And I, I can see that making a lot of sense, especially once we get the data, the kind of uploading your brain or at least getting enough data from you. If you use VR for yeah. 300 hours, how much does that computer, that AI at that point know about what I would do if I'm not even... Everything. And this is, by the way, my prediction, and quote me on this, is that I think the biggest companies in 20 years are going to be VR companies because they have this data about every aspect of your life, what you're afraid of, what you're interested in, what you find fascinating just from looking at your eyes and your dilation. Yeah. I mean, they'll know you so, so well, and they're going to gather petabytes of information about you individually, and that's going to be the value. They're not going to make money selling you goggles. Right, sure. It's the fact that you are going to be in these worlds capturing everything about these social dynamics in minute detail, a way we can't do in real life. Yeah. And they're going to have virtual economies as well, where you're buying and selling all this virtual stuff. And so these VR are going to be the biggest companies in the world. And they're going to be VR companies. I can see that. I can definitely see that. And it's fascinating, right? Because people freak out about, wow, Facebook knows my birthday and it knows where yeah, I yeah. was because I took a vacation, knows where those pictures were. Wait till Facebook knows, knows what types of foods accelerate your heart rate right. and make you happier, release dopamine in your right, brain. Right, right. Or the VR company knows what type of people you find attractive at a right, visceral right, level right, right, right. versus, I mean, they're going to be able to make things right, right. for you in real time that are exactly what you want to eat right, or right, exactly right. what you exactly, want to see. Right. So that's where the money is. It's not in selling you, you know, gear. Right. The gear, at, at some point, the gear could be next to free because yeah. it could be a loss leader just to Absolutely. get you in there. Yeah. It's like the Kindle. Yeah. Unbelievable. I was thinking about this, and this is more augmented reality. My friend earlier who you were speaking yeah. with before the show was selling a house. And he said, you know, staging is this thing I hadn't thought about. The cost of staging a house, which is where they put all the fake furniture in there, it's like six to $8,000, depending on how nice you want it to look and how big your house is. And I said, well, we're talking to Kevin Kelly. You should tell him you could do the, even the phone VR, and you could have that be completely free because they come in and they map your house. And the way they make money is every time new people walk in your house, it's like they're looking at the corner of a room and it says $350 crate and barrel armoire. Right, right. And then it's like posturepedic right, mattress right, right, ranges right, right. from $1,000 to $2,000. And if it's like, if you want that and you want it to go right there, yeah. you can go dink, dink, and then it'll yeah, buy yeah. it with your credit card and they'll come and move it in and set it up just yeah, like yeah, you yeah. saw it. Yeah. One of the first VR experiences I had in the second go-around was doing a walkthrough of this Malibu mansion from Fort Mason, San Francisco. And I was walking through, and it was an incredibly visceral, authentic experience of you know walking through a house that was for sale. What does your brain do when things aren't photorealistic? Does it just kind of go into the same mode it does when you're playing a video game where the bar kind of recalibrates to, all right, this is all yeah. the input I'm taking in. Yeah, so photorealism is, as we know, not necessarily 100% needed. And you only have to watch, you know, like a Pixar movie or something to be swept up in someone's personality and, and deciding that's real. 
But I have to also say that the photorealism is coming along very well. I saw a demo of what they call uh, volumetric capture, which is the technical term for doing a complete 3D capture of somebody, like you right now. Right, like where it makes the grid on me and it well, shows Well, no, the... 3D meaning that I can look at you from any angle, up or down or back or side, but it's also you're live. It's not just a static photo. Oh, wow. You're living. And I can see every hair in your head move and your eyelashes move. I can see the fabric on this. And in 3D, and I can walk around it. That's where we are right now in the lab. Wow. It's as good as seeing there. And the um, belief, the feeling, the experience is total. So much that I felt uncomfortable getting too close to that. Because it, you felt that you had, it had I psychological was a, space. I was a, yeah, the psychological space. It was, even though I could walk through them, it was like, I don't want to get that close. Right. It was, it was a woman. It was a beautiful woman. It was like, you can see the implications of that, too, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so it was like, I can even step back here. And You're a gentleman. What can I say? Exactly. You're right. With somebody I don't know? Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Plow right through. <laughs> and so I think that avatars could do more than we think, cartoon versions. I think we're going to be very close to having that, that resolution of saying this is good enough. And it won't matter at, won't at a matter. certain point, especially if you spend 16 waking hours in a VR and then you take it off for a few minutes to reset your eyes or, or get some yeah, food, yeah. if you even need to do that in 50 to 100 years. And it won't matter. That'll be the low resolution. They'll right, have right. a slang term for real life that will be sort of pejorative, right? Yeah, I think what happens when you take it off is that you realize how amazing reality is every time. I think that you'll always be able to tell the difference between a projection and the real thing, always, if you want to. Most of the time you don't care, but if you want to, you'll be able to care. And when you take it off, you just realize there's just so much else going on. And it's not just going to be the visuals, it's the smells, it's the wind, mm -hmm. it's the quality of the experience that we have in real life that's just really going to be hard to beat. So you'll appreciate reality simply Absolutely. that yeah. much more real than yeah. the thing you it's, it's like It's like, oh, there's all kinds of things going on here that... That's been experience of people who spent time in it. I could see that because we are at some level, well, at every level, evolved to realize right. that this is what's real and something, no matter how amazingly programmed it is, up to a right, point, right, right. It will still seem at some level not quite as real as what right, right. our brains think is real. Right. When you say that in order to predict, we look where people put their time and energy without compensation, yeah. Wikipedia, Instagram, whatever, we're curating this podcast, for example, although now I'm compensated for it, I wasn't before. How do you know what's going to grow. And it looks like you're aiming towards what people are paying attention to. And how do you measure those trends? How are you looking at what humans are paying attention to when it's not already happening? I mean, we know Instagram and Facebook are catching on because we're on them all the time. What do you look for in terms of those types of trends? You mentioned white space. Yeah, white space is this idea that came from, I think, people studying the pattern of science is the white space is sort of the space in between things where there's nothing. And there should be something. And we can kind of explore that pretty easily by the idea of AI right now. So it's like white space would be if you take, you know, AI here and fashion, there's got to be something between AI and fashion, AI, fashion, you know, what, I don't know what it is. That's a white space right now. That's something that's going to be filled in with businesses, opportunities, expertise at some point in the future. But right now it's empty. So it's this idea there are these empty spaces where there should be something, but there isn't. And you'd mentioned AI, especially in the book, as yeah. the next 10,000 startups are going to be adding AI uh, to, to literally just about anything else. Right, right. And we're going to look back when I'm old and gray saying, 
man, if I'd only known about adding right, AI right. To, to drapes, I would right, be a right. billionaire. Exactly. Or, you know, the, the recent one is, let's take something like really old-fashioned, boring, dumb. Taxis will add AI. Sure. Uber. Uber. There you go. I heard that's on the upswing, that company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but that gives you a sense of what we can do with that. And I think there's going to be, you know, in food, uh, furniture, toys. In a certain sense, the more unobvious and the more obscure the thing is, I think the more powerful the transformation will be. Let's talk about what AI kind of really yeah, is. Yeah. Because I think a lot of folks, and especially in the last few years, before I really started thinking about AI, what that meant was something that talks. Right. That was pretty much it. It wasn't what AI really is, which is something that almost thinks. Yeah, so you, you, I like to use the word artificial smartness because we have so much intellectual baggage with intelligence. <laughs> we think we know what it is. It's the AI, you know, it's the robot, it's how, whatever it is. There are many different ways to be smart and there are many different kinds of smartness and animal intelligence is another good example. The thing to keep in mind is that this artificial smartness is not going to think like humans primarily. How will it be different? How can we even conceive of it being different if we have to think about it sure. and it's a different Well, thinking. right now we have an AI that's smarter than you are by miles. I, um, that's not surprising. In arithmetic. Well, that's definitely not surprising. That's your calculator. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll give your it that. Your calculator is a genius in arithmetic compared to you, right? Are we freaked out by that? No, because it's a very narrow thing. Your GPS is smarter than you are in spatial navigation. Google is way smarter than you are in recall. Yeah, it has right. memorized 60 trillion web pages. Every word on 60 trillion web pages it has it in its head right now. It just knows it. That's how you search for it. And so all these things are much greater than us. And what we're going to do is you know, we'll make these AIs more complicated by adding many different kinds of thinking. But our own brains have many different types of thinking in them. Deductive reasoning, symbolic reasoning, emotional intelligence, spatial navigation, all these things. They're very complicated, not one IQ, which is just right. one vector. It's a multidimensional space, and the AIs that we make are also going to be the same way. In some cases, some parts of those will be greater than us, and others will be more quieter. You can't optimize everything. Right. I don't need my cat toy to be smarter than me, except in the arena of entertaining my cat while I'm trying to sleep or whatever. Right. Your car, the self-driving car, will have... An AI that's not like humans on purpose because we don't want it to be like humans. We don't want it to be conscious. Yeah, we don't, don't want it to be distracted. I don't want my car distracted. Right. You just want it to drive, and it's going to drive much better than the humans are. As you were saying, people might complain that they don't have the right to drive anymore, and they may not, and there's lots of problems to overcome. But in general, it will drive better than humans, and that's why we're going to have them do it because they don't think like humans. Right. And then you, and they'll probably be really lousy with a conversation, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And if you want a conversation, you have to have another kind of an AI, the right. conversation bot. And so all these are different ways of thinking. And we're actually going to invent wholly new ways of thinking, just as we invented new ways of flying. We didn't flap wings. We said, well, no, the way you, you, way right. you make an artificial bird is you make a stiff wing with a huge propeller on it. Right, not a... a flap, is that the Leonardo, like a Leonardo the or an early... Yeah, yeah, or the orthocopper... The way we're going to make AI is not like humans thinking. It's like a barn door with a propeller, and we're going to make it think in a new way. And those different ways of thinking are going to be the most valuable thing about it. And so we're going to invent, for some of the hardest problems in business and in science, we probably require 
uh, new types of brains to figure them out and solve them. So we're going to be working with them because we think differently than they think and they think differently than we do. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. Right, so instead of a calculator that's just good for doing math, we might have a, a bot that shows us how to keep water clean at an optimum level across right. the entire planet or Absolutely. something like right, that. Right, right. You know, like when we're trying to solve some problems, say like taxation, fairness. Well, there's no perfect taxation thing because it can't be fair for 7 billion people. Right. But you might, you might have ways to actually try and level it in many different dimensions all at once, something we can't do. Right, by making lives. 7 billion different, different calculations, calculations. Right, right. Similar yeah, things conflict. like that. So, so, those are, so there are some real kinds of social level, not just trivial, but really significant things that we may use this other kind of thinking to do for us. That's going to require a lot of what you had mentioned, tracking, right? which scares the crap out of maybe half the population. Sure. The other half of the population is voluntarily wearing things like you and I are right, right now right, right. to track more stuff right. because we want, this, we want to accelerate this process. Why is tracking so uncomfortable? What, what is it about that us as humans just find tracking a little bit off-putting? Well, so first of all, I don't think we find it off-putting in general because we evolved in little clans. In those clans, everybody knew everything about you. If right. we were in the same clan, man, we would know. And we were living, right. we had no technology. It's like, I know everything about you day and night. It's like high school, but times 10. Times 10. Everything about you. There's no escape. You know, we're sleeping in the same big room. I mean, they literally were. And so we have comfort there. And the reason why we are comfortable with that is because it was symmetrical. It was mutual. I saw you. You saw me. You knew everything about me. Mm -hmm. And if you get a wrong idea or I could correct you, I could hold you accountable. I got some benefit from all that. Where we're uncomfortable now is when we have tracking and it's not symmetrical. Unidirectional. They, right. whoever In they are, are watching me. I don't know what they're gathering. They're not accountable to me. They could be totally wrong. And I get no benefit. So that is what feels uncomfortable is this asymmetry. And so I talk about covalence which is restoring that symmetry so that 
we are watching the watchers, the watchers are watching us, there's a mutual respect and accountability. So if something's being tracked, I want to have access to it. I need to be able to hold them accountable for what happens with that information, and I need to get direct benefit from it. If we can do that, I think we can restore some of that covalence. Now, that is a big task to do when you have a government or a big company like Google, because obviously it's not symmetrical. Right. I mean, they are huge, and they know everybody's, and I don't even know me. Restoring that kind of symmetry is a big challenge. Sure. But I think we can go a lot further to where we are by enabling that that mutual surveillance. This makes sense because, of course, getting big data companies to yeah. share data, which is essentially the industry that they're in, could be a little tricky. It's going to be like an arms race. Well, right, you put right. your data out there first. Well, no, right, you right, put right. your data out there first. Well, what data do we want to share? What data right, should right. everyone have access to? Is there going to be a right, government right, oversight right, right. body that's going to try to do this? Which let's not even go into right, the efficiency right, right. of that. It could be really tricky. It is going to be tricky, and we're going to be talking about it, you know, forever now. And I would even argue with some of the basic ideas of, of like, data ownership. I don't believe you can really even own data. How is that? I mean, you could collect it, right, but it's not yours? Well, okay, so let's take the data, the one thing that I am here right now. How can I own that? First of all, because it's, I'm in a space that other people own, and they know that I'm here, so... I mean, how do I own it if, if they also have it too, right? True. Yeah. Okay. There's these inherent difficulties of owning bits, but also owning bits that whose meaning comes from the fact that there's more than one person. Right. Multiple More parties. than one stakes involved in it. And so even my heartbeat, in a certain sense, I'm generating the heartbeat, but this device that's measuring it, they have a stake in that too. Sure. They have some responsibilities and duties and rights from the fact that they are collecting that information. So there's many different parts, and they have some ownership of that in a certain sense. So I think the idea of, like of a single agent owning some data, I think, is, is the wrong model, mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. I think we want to think about it as like you have multiple factors, multiple agents, multiple stakeholders in every bit that's being generated. The first sort of subsection in the book, is it 12 subsections? Yeah. With well, The first one I noticed was becoming. Right. And in that we are endless newbies, which makes me feel really good, by the way, because <laughs> I feel my parents, when they look at things like iPhones, I have to teach. Yeah, my yeah. dad just found out there was email on his phone. He's had an iPhone yeah. for, I think, three or four years now. Yeah. And my mom said, oh, just check your email on your phone. And he said, I can check my email <laughs> on my phone. And... And, uh, you know, we laugh about it, but that's, that's me in 20 yeah, yeah. years, right? Un unless it's right, everybody right, right. in 20 years, when, then it's okay. Well, it is everybody in 20 years. It's, everyone's going to be a newbie. So you think, you know, you're feeling really good because you finally mastered your smartphone. But in four years, we'll have VR. And then a whole new set of gestures and logic and language that will be needed to learn anew for that. And, you know, you may be pretty cool because you just graduated, you know, Java. Well, Java is, you know, you're going to be in a whole new language you're going to have to learn in four years or so. And then after that, I mean, not just once, but twice and three times and four times. And so we're going to be in this perpetual state of all being newbies, no matter what age we are, of not being late, of being at this equivalent starting gate where there are no experts. There really are no VR experts, there really are no AI experts compared to what we know in 30 years. It seems like the gap between, well, for example, the 90s, if you knew stuff about computers, right. people were like, whoa, what's going on with the whole computer thing? And my friend has a computer. So the gap between, I guess you would call it almost not tribal knowledge, but having technology be esoteric in some fashion, that's quickly coming to a close so fast and so quickly that 
now it's going to be the opposite, where nobody actually has a, a grip on this entirely. It's just a matter of huge swathes of the population consistently learning things. It seems like we do that a little bit now. I mean, I didn't have Instagram until recently because I just didn't want to deal with it. And finally, enough people had been tagging me and bugging me to do it that I started it. And it took me about, I don't know, 15 minutes to figure out how to use the whole thing. And even things are are very intuitive on purpose to ease in this process. So I liked a photo the other day that my friend had posted. And instead of trying to click the heart, because sometimes my finger misses and it hits something else. I just tapped the photo twice and sure enough, the heart popped up and it's like, it knew (laughs) that I wanted to do that because enough people have probably tried to do that. And they said the most common functionality is a like, just make the double tap, do the most common thing. And so it seems like what you're saying is that's going to consistently grow until you can pick up something like this as a two-year-old kid and go, huh, I know that this makes it grow and then this thing makes it shrink and then this makes it go that way and this makes it go that way. Yeah, I mean, it's very possible that we can actually have an AI-assisted UX design. So the design is being developed by how people think it should be used. So there's going to be 8 million two-year-olds, right, right, and right. That, that hive mind dictates right, right. how we use all of this Exactly, stuff. right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, that's what spelling works. If enough people misspell something... Sure, yeah, good point. That is the way it's that's, all going to be spelled. That's true. That's and, true. And, Ask the British. We've basically done that to every word they once held dear. Right, right exactly. And, you know, I, I think we could almost imagine, you know, I don't know, a thousand years from now when they would spell things logically in English. Just phonetics? Yeah, right. Clearly. Right, exactly. Yeah. What's this, you know, lieutenant or, uh, I don't know. Um, L-O-O-T-E-N-T <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. I can't even spell phonetic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was it? The difference between uh, chief and chef. Yeah, there's an I in there somewhere. No, it's a C-H. One is sh, the other one's ch. It's like, this is oh, totally... I see what you, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. English is just notorious for this really illogical, irrational spelling. Yeah, we love our exceptions. Which is because it came from the fusion of French and the Latin stuff. And here's the kicker, which many languages have the same thing. But in English, those two joined just at the moment that we froze everything because of dictionaries, because we invented dictionaries. See, normally what would oh, happen... Oh, right, right, sure. It would consistently evolve. It would evolve and everything was sorted out. But we invented dictionaries right at that point of this sure. thing. So we have this frozen artifact of this incomplete fusion. It's like we dictated it all to the Pope, Webster, right, and right. he went, this is the way everything is. Right, and if they right. want to make changes, now it makes news when, well, now yeah, selfie's yeah. a word. Right, well, right. I knew it was a word before you put it in that dumb book right, that right. nobody bought, buys right, anymore, right? right? So, it's a real so word. dictionaries are, are an artifact that will go away. Sure, so. I would imagine, yeah. yeah. Other than translation dictionaries, I think. If you haven't tried the new AI uh, translate from Google, which was released two days ago, try it. It's funny you should mention that because I saw an ad the other day yeah. for these earbuds that you yeah. put in and if you only speak French and I right, only right, speak right. Chinese, it works. And I posted this and everyone wrote, that won't work. Have that you tried Google? absolutely work yeah. because the new Google Translate is now just about as good as a human translator. That's impressive because it used it, to be ridiculous. It used to be ridiculous. It was only half as good because they were using a part thing. Now they have the new neural nets that they use to beat the Go player. And they've imported that into oh, wow. that. And so a perfect translation is considered a six. A normal human can translate a 5.1, and the Google can translate at 5.0. The old one was wow. at three point. That's incredible. So Scott, right, right. Scott Wilson, who on my Facebook said, that'll never work with Vietnamese. You try that Google Translate. So it only works with Mandarin and Chinese and oh, English right now. Try it later. <laughs> but but yes. I think the idea of having the thing that you wear 
and you need to be connected online. You're sure. Going online. Sure. But I think the thing that you wear that will translate for you is within five years. So I spent the last five years learning Mandarin, and yeah. what you're saying is that may or may not have been a complete waste of my time. Yeah, yeah, right. Shoot. Bu hao. Bu hao. Long face and jam. Dang it. <laughs> What about the rate of progress and especially AI? Are we going to become future blind where things are moving so fast that we just can't even keep up because we're no longer sort of bottlenecking the process of design and technology if AI starts to take this over? I want to emphasize again that AI thinks differently than humans and that we will team up with it. And there's so much that we value in our own lives that we want human relationships, which are terribly inefficient and not at all robotic. I mean, AI can be very creative. We know that right now. It's going to be very creative. There's this myth that it's not creative. Well, it's very creative, but it's, it's creative in a different way. And we're going to use that creativity. There'll be designers and other people who will use the creativity of AI, but it's not going to be creative in the way humans are creative. And that's a relief to a lot of people, I think, but also kind of a bummer in some ways, because what if that could take off exponentially? Or do you think that's just a matter of time until that happens as well? With the, the creativity? Mm -hmm. It's already happened. Um, the AlphaGo guys who lost, they said that a move 37 in the game three, which was this amazing move, was an absolutely one of the most creative moves they ever saw. In the game in of the Go, game, in the, the game AI. of Go. Okay. Right. So this was the AlphaGo, Google AI making that move. And they said the people who knew the best said that was absolutely one of the most brilliant creative moves ever. Okay. And so it was creative. We can see them doing AIs, doing painting, doing music. They can compose music that even experts couldn't tell whether it was a Mozart composition or wow. not. Wow. So to put this in context, the game of Go is, and I might butcher this, yeah. kind of like it's Asian sort of chess-ish, yeah. checkers-ish, so complicated, so complicated game that they said AI can never do this because right. there's just too much going on. Right. It's they, too big picture and nuanced at the same time. Exactly. It was not something that was at all could be done in a mechanical way of exploring all the possibilities. There were just too many possibilities. The only way you could actually win it was to take a kind of holistic, intuitive snapshot of what was going on. And that's what they thought they couldn't tell a machine how to do. But this neural net from Google actually learned how to do that. And in the same way, it can translate. You know, translating is not just translate one word at a time. You have to translate the whole sentence. At right. Once. You have to translate and you have to take in the context if right. possible. And that's what it's doing now. So it's actually being creative. And the thing is, is that its way of being creative is different from, let me say, the highest or the best way the humans are. And I think what we're going to discover is that creativity is actually pretty mechanical. Creativity is actually not, not huh. creative. There are a lot of aspects of creativity that are going to be very mechanical. Interesting. We will teach those aspects to the machines. It looks like an amorphous shape that yeah. only humans can do because it really is just maybe hundreds or millions or whatever of little mechanical switches right. flipped in different directions that make it code, almost like Braille. Well, it's like a lot of things, like consciousness and all. It turns out that there'll be many different species of it, many different varieties mm -hmm. of it. And so creativity itself is something we use in a broad term, but there's probably maybe 10, 15 different varieties. And what's going to happen over time is that we're going to evolve the kind of language to understand that in the same way, intelligence. Intelligence is not a single thing. It's multidimensional. There are many different types of it. And over time, every person will have an idea of the different types of intelligence and thinking and creativity. Just like 30, 40 years ago, typography was a very esoteric thing that only 200 people in the world knew the difference between serifs and sans serifs face, right. right? Now everybody knows. 
Right, because you have Microsoft Word. Right, right. Yeah. It's, something, it's a general education and grammar school about kerning. Sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the same thing. Right now, we have no idea about the differences in creativity or intelligence, but every grammar school kid in 50 years will be able to tell you, oh, what are the 10 types of intelligence? Sure. Oh, that's incredible. Right. right. Because it'll be so common that there are right, different right, types. Right. right now, it's right, just, right. what do you mean different types of yeah, intelligence? Right. There's smart right. people and dumb people. Yeah, so and the, 15, don't people. And the 15 ingredients for creativity. And, wow. You know, yeah. Yeah. To give people an idea of, of how much this is a big deal is you illustrated this really well. Humans used to have animals pulling plows and things right, like right, that. Right, right. And then we found engines and electric equipment. Artificial power, I call right. it. Artificial power, right? So, or AP, for yeah. those of you who want to follow along at home, <laughs> right? And it's like, wow, we can have these things working. They don't get tired. We don't yeah. have to feed them. They don't die and get sick. Well, I they mean, can live to an extent, much higher. They, you know, we can make stronger. a skyscraper. Yeah, right. And then AI is that times whatever exponential right. value because not only are we able to power things and make them strong and infinitely large, small, whatever, we're then going to be able to say, you know what, you figure out the best way to do this because you have type number 78 intelligence, which yeah. is what you're designed to do. I'll be over here not doing a thing, right, making right. sure you don't implode or something like right, that. Right, right, right. So like when you drive your car down the highway with just your wrist and switch, turning a switch, you harness, you call forth, you beckon 250 horses. Right. I think about that sometimes. Right? How many? 250 horses. Would be. It's like, oh, there they are. And they're going to run all day. We'll use them to throw up a skyscraper like they're making across the street or railways or whatever. Okay. Now we're going to take 250 mines. They're not human mines, but they're 250 mines of some sort. We're going to add them to those 250 horses. And that's the self-driving car. That's the AI car. But so the question you want to ask yourself right now is what would you do? If you had 24-7 access to really cheap, a thousand mines, they're not human minds, but they're smart in many different ways. What would you do with that? Start solving problems or start horsing around? Probably both. I'll do something. I mean, you could take the taxis and make Uber. You could <laughs> add them to their drapes. What would you do with a thousand mines right. that you could beckon at any time and work for cheap for as long as you want? What could you do? And that's the second industrial revolution. And the people who figure out how to apply the minds are going to be the people who, right. the Andrew Carnegie's. Right. And I, and I kind of refer to, I talk about, well, you know, this is this, the formula for the next 10,000 startups to take X and add AI, but because AI becomes a commodity, but if it's a commodity, you also have the reverse problem, which is, well, everybody has access to it. So it's actually take AI and add X. In other words, it's what you do oh, with right. AI. It's the interface for it. Because anybody can buy AI just like you can buy electricity. So it's not going to be no differentiation. You have to do something special. You have to have a particular story and an interface, something in addition to the AI. So it's going both ways. Can you give us examples of how this might work in general fields like medicine or construction or real well, estate? Medicine, or something? it's already happening. I just talked to a guy last night doing diagnostics. So right now, an AI can do pretty good medical diagnostics. It's not as good as a human, but by the way, if you're in Africa and don't have access to a doctor and could get this on a phone, it's like a thousand million sure. times better than no doctor. Sure, sure. And eventually it'll be better than a human doctor with right. no AI. But the best diagnostician medically today is not an AI and it's not a doctor, but it's a team, team of AI, yeah. an AI and a doctor. And so that is what will continue. But if you don't have that, Again, just the AI by itself is better than, than no doctor at all. And 
that's happening very, very, very rapidly. There's a lot of legal issues which will prevent it from happening as quick as it could. The FDA wants to be involved. Oh, yeah, of course. So this will happen overseas. So we can have, yeah, I was going to say medical tourism where I go to China and use their AI. Right. And everybody says, oh, I heard those can kill you. I saw it on Fox. <laughs> those robots, they put them inside you and they, they take over. That's the email I'm going to get from my mom in five years. Don't use the AI yeah, right, diagnostics. Right right, 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 right. There's something insidious about it. You got to be trying to kill off all the all the Armenians, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's going to be something like, yeah, yeah, right. oh, be careful. You're one sixteenth Armenian. Wait a minute. What? I'm googling this. Why does my mom not want me to go to the doctor? Yeah. Yeah. Photography is something that you're passionate about. Yeah. How how has this changed photography? Well, it's already changed photography. I mean, the reason why your cell phone is a camera is because of computation. So computational photography is, is replacing heavy lenses and dark rooms with bits, and that will continue to go forward. There, there's even a possibility of having a lensless photography. That just does computations well, that replace the lens? What the lens does, you know, there's a sensor and there's a lens, and it's focusing the light, and you have to point it in the general direction. But you could take a flat sensor and put it out on the table, and it gets light from every single part of the room, but they're all different lens. If it was smart enough, that lens could reverse engineer the entire room. Right. The sensor can reverse engineer, engineer the whole with, room. without even the lens. And then it just shows you what everything looks like right. based on mathematical calculations. Right. It reconstructs the entire room just by the fact that this little pixel here will get uh, light from different directions compared to the one next to it. So it's like an insane amount of computation. That's crazy. But it's in theoretically possible. So what that means is that, in a certain sense, anything could become a camera. Sure. Man, that's going to be cool to put something like that in space and be able to see 1,000, 10,000, a million times more things than we can see now with Hubble right? because of this technology. Right. We'll yeah. be, that's going to be how we discover things that are That's one way where you make it even more sensitive to photons. That's a separate thing, but that is another possibility which we could send them into space. But VR, this idea of having volumetric capture in real time, will keep, will occupy photography for a long time. And then the other thing that AI is going to change photography is right now, if you upload all your photos to Google, the Google AI will search through all your photos and tell you, like you could say, show me all the pictures of my mom. Oh, cool. And it'll just get you all the pictures of the mom. You don't have to tag them or anything. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. What I've always wanted to do, and I'm waiting for somebody to make this on Facebook for literally 10 years, I want to find all the people in the world that look pretty much exactly like me with different haircuts. You could could do that too. I really Is that possible even now? There have to be just sheer probability. There's going to be... People who live in China, people who live in Russia, right, people right, who live right, in South right, America, right. who basically look like me with hopefully a better haircut. Yeah, yeah. So Facebook says they have the technology to do that. In fact, Facebook has, says that they have the technology that could identify every human on Earth, even if they're not on Facebook, just because they have their friends probably. Sure, someone got a photo of them. And they've tagged yeah. them. Oh, right? incredible. But they don't really want to do that because they don't think that's their business, and they were somewhat afraid that they would be... Um, forced to do that on a regular basis by three-letter agencies. Sure. Well, China can do it first for their own government, and then somebody could say, you know, we can market this, and then we'll all be using that licensed version of what that is. So that's possible now. That's incredible. That's that's possible now. But but even 
if you go on to your upload your own photos, which I've uploaded own, almost 200,000 photos to Google, and I can search for anything in any of my photos. That's so cool. I could say, like, show me all the photos that have, like, apples in them. There they are. Really? Show me all the photos that... Uh, oh, I remember there was this guy with a pirate hat. There it is. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Right. That's, so that's the, today. That ties together the world in a really cool way. The other week, I got an email from somebody who said, hey, this is random, but literally 10 years ago almost now, we did a show on the radio where we were doing... It was an article about Halloween or something like that, and we did a show about it. And we found some guy with a Halloween costume on that he had made that was an ingenious beer keg that he had a drinkable spout. And it was hilarious. And we took that picture and we uploaded it. And last week or so, somebody said, hey, this is weird, but do you know the guy in the photo? And yeah. I said, no, we just got on the internet. And he goes, dang, you know what? It's my brother. And we're looking for his friends. And he'd passed away. And we don't have a connection with his life. And we were hoping maybe you knew him. And he goes, I just can't believe I found this picture in your article yeah. because he wasn't looking for the picture. He wasn't looking for his brother. He was just reading right, an article. Right, 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 and right. it's like if you're looking for somebody and you can type in or upload a photo yeah, of yeah. them that you have of them as a kid and a computer says, well, this is what they would look like now. This person lives in another country. I mean, you could track people in a way that's well, just actually, unprecedented. Well, actually, the Google face recognition will recognize people independent of their age. Really? How does that? So there are certain things yeah, that yeah, basically right. don't change? So, so he had pictures, and he tagged his daughter. And when he uploaded his earlier pictures of her when she was really young, it recognized her. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. So we're very close Unreal. to this point. Where the AIs can understand photos and, and remember all everyone that they've ever seen. That's the thing, is they will remember every single photo and everybody in every single photo forever. This reminds me of when smartphones or phones yeah, in general yeah, yeah. that you fit in your pocket. You know how no one knows phone numbers now? Just yeah. nobody does. I just don't know my wife's and number. That you should maybe you should learn at least <laughs> yeah, one, right? Yeah. And you don't know how to navigate anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you do, and I I barely do, but I'll tell you right now, a lot of my friends, especially younger ones, yeah. they couldn't find their way out of a paper bag because they have GPS all the time. Okay, right. Is recognizing people going to be something that we eventually <laughs> stop doing? Like, you look familiar. It's your mother, Jordan. Come on. <laughs> my phone's not with me. Sorry, I, I left it in the well, car. Well, no, my glasses. Right. It's your glasses that's going to do it, right? So it'll say, this is Kevin Kelly. I you want met that in so, so bad. I want it right now. Because I had gone to conferences, uh, and the next day... I'm sorry, what was your name? Was never your again. Name? That'll never happen and again. That was, I'd just spent an afternoon with him. It was terrible. Yeah, you'll know... His name, yeah, his yeah. wife's name, his and kids' the, birthdays, and, the, and, and salary. Yeah, right. and where he went on vacation. Yeah, exactly. And if you're one of the guys who likes to break things and, and set them up, you'll be able to add your own notes or you'll be able to crowdsource yeah, stuff. Right, right, right. Jane thought he was a real jerk. She went out with him three years ago. Here's what happened. Would that change that, behavior? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Hopefully for the better. Yeah. Right? I, you're always on your best behavior because something that happens with you and I today is going to come back in 10 years with a mutual friend well, long is, after. This is that covalence that oh, I'm talking man. about. Yeah, we got to be careful. Remember, next time you feel like acting up with somebody, covalence. Just right, remember. Exactly. And we're training this AI every day, right? I mean, absolutely. Every you time think, I search, you think you're surfing around, clicking on random things, but each time you click, you are training the AI. Yeah, man. Will AI replace us largely, or will it help us become better humans mostly? Right now, a lot of the tasks that we do in our lives, where any any kind of a task where efficiency or productivity is an issue, goes to the bots. But a lot of the things that we value the most, like innovation, science, are inherently inefficient because you have failure after failure after failure. So those are the things that we're going to gravitate to. And human experiences and interpersonal relationships, which, by the way, are inherently inefficient. <laughs> yeah. Those are things that um, we will continue to do because we 
we like other humans. And so, um, but we're in San Francisco. I don't know if everybody shares that same view, right? <laughs> this is Silicon Valley. Not everybody likes other humans. No, we all like other humans in the end. Some of us like machines too. Yes. But, um, I guess that's true. I think that people forget is that we're going to invent so many new things that we want undone with the aid of the AIs and the robots. They will inspire us, force us to invent new things that we want done, that we want to happen. And these new things will be new jobs for us. And so there will be so many more new things to do and jobs than before. So they'll just be different jobs. It's yeah. not like the freak out that we had when we have an assembly line. Oh my gosh, we don't have to hammer these things into place anymore. All these jobs are going to go away. They're just going to become different jobs or it's evolving. The most common job in America right now is truck driver. Truck driver, yeah. And what's going to happen with a lot of the truck drivers? Well, some will have to be retrained, but a lot of them are going to have to keep those trucks going. Sure, they'll turn into repair auto men. truck mechanics. Auto truck yeah. mechanics. That'll be a huge thing just to, you know, they'll think differently. There'll be all kinds of things necessary for them to do that we don't do with them right now. It's even possible. I was kind of imagining this. There might be people who actually ride around inside of them, maybe because in the beginning, there'll be certain parts that they can't drive. Right. It won't be too tricky. They'll be too tricky. Or maybe they're like pilots when they come into the harbor. Right. Sure. You have pilots that just get in and they drive it there and then they give it back. So maybe, yeah. maybe they hang out at these tough intersections or whatever it is. And they're they, just watch this, and then it's going to beep, and then they're right, going right. to put this on pause. Yeah, and right. Back down the switchback trail. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So I think we haven't even begun to imagine all the ways in which we are going to participate in this, but there are going to be so many new things for us to do. Elon Musk and Sam Harris and other guys like that have this fear of AI. Do you share this sort of, uh-oh, what yeah, happens yeah. if it gets too smart thing? Well, the idea there is that you have this intelligence explosion. We make an AI that can then itself design a AI smarter than itself, which then can make something smarter than itself. And you have this infinite regress upwards where it suddenly kind of explodes and becomes God. That's the vision. And of course, then if you're God, you don't need humans. You know, I think that is has a probability greater than zero but it's very, very unlikely for many reasons. And I think the main fallacy they make, again, is this idea of a single dimension in intelligence. Right, a general a, intelligence right. zone. Because as I said, our AIs are already smarter than us in these other Right, my, I'm not afraid of my calculator. I can leave it right, alone right, with right. my fiance. And so this is idea that you have this sort of general purpose. And it's also that intelligence is infinite, which is a very interesting idea that we have no evidence for. Right, right, true. That intelligence, unlike, say, speed, speed has a limit, speed of light, temperature has a limit, coldness has a limit. Why do we think intelligence doesn't have a limit? Right. It's kind of like the Greeks, ancient Greeks, everything over, I think, a thousand, they said yeah. infinite yeah, right, in right, all right, the literature because right. they were like, ah, who's going to need to count right, higher right, than right, that? Right, 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 right. Right? So we're kind of at that point where if you can't see it because it's over the horizon, right. you just think, wow, it must just keep going forever. Exactly. But we don't have any evidence of death. Side. Right. It's like the it's like the flat Earth, right? right Does it right. just go forever? Yeah. Or and then oh it, oh it's a sphere. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Right. So is intelligence spherical? Yeah, I don't know. Outside yeah. my pay grade right yeah, now. Exactly. Robots farm and they manufacture better. Do you think they're going to be doing the white collar work at some level? I mean, I'm a former attorney. I think that a, a really smart monkey could have done a lot of what I was doing. Certainly, I can see AI going through eight thousand legal cases in a certain district and saying, they "Guess do, what? This they, is the they do now." That's, I think I'm not a lawyer anymore. <laughs> that's one of the biggest things of AI in the law field is going through evidence in a way that the humans simply couldn't. You can't sure. just 
memorized, but they, they can actually memorize every single page of, you know, in, in 10,000 documents. And so that's already happening. The concern that people have is what if they're starting to make decisions? What if you have an AI judge? What if you have an AI making some kind of decisions that affects people's lives? And by the way, that's already happening too. How's that? They're using AIs and making mortgages. Oh, I see. Fact, yeah. Factoring okay. mortgages. Sure. Which have a huge effect on people. And there will be even more so. Right now, the army is really interested in having drones who kill people, having them be autonomous. So that we don't have a guy in Nevada deciding whether right. or not to do it. That seems a little, I mean, that okay. viscerally does something to me. Right. You know? Okay. And so here's the argument for it. no AI will ever be accused of a war crime. Right. Because we'll make their ethics or decision completely waterproof. And so they will be less emotional about it. They will be much more rational. They will follow the orders all the time. And if you have orders that you agree with, then that's what you'll get. And so in a certain sense, you're kind of relieving the humans of some of this messy decision. You realize this is literally how Skynet started, right? Exactly. Right. This is exactly what happened. Right. Trust me, it's going to be safer. Right, right. But of course, that also presupposed that it was a generalized AI which is right. what you said is not something that we right, have to right. worry about. No, but you have one just, just manufactured to kill. It's mm-hmm. all right. It's not general. That's why, it's, that's why it's scarier than a calculator, right. because it has missiles on it. Right, exactly. Right. But it's its only job is. It's not to, to do anything else but right. to kill. And by the way, if you're going to have soldiers, isn't that what you want? I'd rather send a robot into battle than my neighbor or exactly. my kid. Right, exactly. Yeah. So the ethics and morality is something that we're going to have a huge, or should be having a huge conversation about. And I don't think that's, I mean, that's just the beginning of the conversations. That's not the end. But I will say is that, of course, if the U.S. doesn't do it, which they're thinking about, China and Russia will. Somebody else will do it. Somebody that's else will do it. Right. right. It's exactly like saying, hey, these nuclear things are really dangerous. We yeah, should right. stay away from that. Wait, is everybody going to abide by that? Right, right, Probably right. not. All right. Get right. to work on these. So things. people ask me if I'm worried about anything in technology, and this is what I'm worried about, is the weaponization of AI and cyber warfare and cyber war because we have no agreed rules. We have no consensus among all these big superpowers, big powers, what the rules should be. Is it okay to hack into a nation's uh, banking system and take it down? Is that like chemical warfare or is that like, you know, that's just war? Fair play. That's just fair play. Um, What about, you know, taking out the traffic lights? It's like we have no rules at all about what's acceptable. And even though the U.S. has offensive cyber um, hacking and China and Russia and Iran and Israel, nobody is admitting to it. And therefore, there's no consensus on what's acceptable. Right. We're kind of in that rape and pillage phase where people used to go and burn down the whole village. And it's like, why did they do that? That was unnecessary. We're kind of there with cyber war. Well, they said it was necessary because, you know, they want to show strength. Sure. They had the justifications. Right. But we've come to say, no, that's not unacceptable. Women and children, unacceptable on killing them or chemicals, maybe mines to some extent, but we should be. So we don't have the equivalent right now in cyber, partly because it's really hard to verify. Yeah, quantify, exactly. Verify who's done it, but also because it's also new and we don't have these equivalencies right now in our mind. Yeah, it's hard to say taking out the electrical grid yeah. during the wintertime in Michigan was as severe as just carpet bombing right, Detroit, right, right, but it kind right. of, maybe it has the exact same effect in terms of human life. It could. Right. And so, so I do worry that the, we might have or endure a huge disaster first before it kind of forces sure. uh, a demand for, for this. Sure. Of, I can absolutely see that. And you outlined the 
seven stages of robot replacement. Is it, am I getting that right? It's something like, I did the first three in my head, which is, oh, that's never going to yeah, happen. Yeah, right, right, that was right. stage one, I think, right? There was a Pew survey of the internet did this very large scale survey, which I replicated at my book launch with 200 people from Silicon Valley. And it's important to remember that they're from Silicon Valley. Right. And I, and I asked the same question that Pew asked. And I said, how many people here would agree with the statement that in 50 years, 75% of the current jobs would be gone because 150 years ago, 70% of Americans were farmers, less than 1%. So basically 70% of all American jobs were gone, were completely eradicated by technology. So how many people in this room think that in 50 years from now, 75% of all today's jobs will be gone? And it was almost universal. Everybody said, yes, I think 70% sure. in 50 years. And then I asked the follow-up question, which Pew said, how many people here would agree with the statement that in 50 years, your, your job, job is going to be gone? Right. Nobody. Right. Nobody. Of course. So they think, oh, everyone else's job is going to be taken by right. him. But not Poor mine. bastards. But yeah. not my job. Luckily, Luckily I'm smarter than that. Right. I knew that. Coming. Saw it coming. <laughs> well, I think Jordan Bot would do pretty good. He probably wouldn't have to pee halfway through every single show, yeah, which right. is fine. I mean, that's an improvement if I've yeah, ever seen yeah, right. one. It's true. I mean, I guarantee you, if you ask any lawyer right now if a robot yeah, yeah. can do their job, I would say that a much greater percentage than half is going to say, well, probably not what I do because it's yeah, a little yeah. more nuanced. But some of my first year and second year <laughs> associates, those people are definitely going to be screwed, you know, in 20 years. Uh, I can see that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I really like about the future, according to the future, according yeah, yeah. to Kevin Kelly, is personalization of everything. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of people are kind of scared of this. Oh, I saw an ad for a jacket on Facebook and I was just looking at it. That's creeping me out. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's one of the coolest things that we're going to see. And you took it a step further, which I thought was even more amazing. I was taking my vitamins this morning, for example, and I took, I don't know, some sort of multi things, liquid and some garlic and a fish oil and a oregano or whatever. But you're saying that in the future, it's going to, be able to look at my DNA and say, or my metabolism or some combination of factors and say, all right, your multi has exactly this and none of that. And you're taking exactly this amount of this and none of this other stuff. And you might be able to even use 23andMe and order this combo from Amazon in the future. Pretty soon we'll probably be making them at home day by day. Exactly. There's this guy in Silicon Valley who has a startup that is, he called 3D pill printing, but it's actually a little more complicated. It has to do with Quantified self stuff where you're sure. monitoring your own health, not just health. Nanobots in your bloodstream or Whatever. something. Whatever. I mean, there's so many things right now. There's even ways to actually um, do blood tests without pricking you. One way is to yes. actually look at, measure your exhalations. Turns out that when you exhale, you're actually exhaling a lot of body chemistry. Huh. And on the way is, is a way to actually suck blood through your skin without pricking it in a very tiny amounts so that you can actually measure. So you can do kind of like ongoing blood test things that right now are done very infrequently and are expensive, but tell you everything about your blood. So imagine if you had some kind of thing at home where you had any kind of supplements or treatments that you were taking all in bulk, and each day you would make one pill. It would take all the things you were supposed to take and take it one pill, and you would take it, and then your sensors would measure the results in your body, the changes. Sure. And it would send it back to the pill machine so that tomorrow is going to make readjust the dosages. Right. Oh, you got too much iron before lunch. We'll have that release a little right. slower. And, right. And so we'll remix it. So you have this oh, man. daily personal therapeutic just for you. Great. 
that's where we're going with this kind of stuff. Too busy to have lunch? Try this Wi-Fi back patch that sucks your blood through your skin, measures what you need, and manufactures it for right, you. Exactly. Might so, want to work on that copy. So if we have all these medical cures, we've got all this personalization, our healthcare right, right, is going right, to be right, great, right. our lifestyle is going to be great, hopefully a lot safer. Are you worried about overpopulation at all? Oh, my gosh. No. I'm, I'm worried about underpopulation, severe underpopulation on a global level. There are a couple countries in the world that I spend a lot of time in, like Japan, where depopulation is a real issue. Every official UN projection that we've seen has one version of it where the population peaks out in, I don't know, whatever it is, is 2070 or somewhere. There's a peak population. What's interesting about all those curves is they never show you the other side of what happens on the right, other side. Right, it's always, here's the scary thing you got to look it, forward it st- to. It stops right here, but it's like, okay, what happens on the other side is it goes down, 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 because you have basically low fertility below replacement level throughout the world. And all this begins in the developed countries, but it's happening very rapidly even in the developing countries. And China is aging faster than the U.S. Okay, Mexico is aging faster than the U.S. The U.S. is sort of an exception for only one reason. Immigration? Immigration. Really? U.S. would be in the same state as Italy and other countries if we didn't have immigration. So that's another reason, for many good reasons, to have immigration, because we'll have a positive fertility rate. So send us your huddled masses as long as they're under 30. Exactly, right. So some people would say, well, that's really good for the earth because we have less people, less stress on it. But here's the thing. Throughout history, throughout the the entire 10,000 years of recorded history that we know about, every time there was rising standards of living, it always was accompanied by increasing population. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. We have no evidence anywhere. There have been increasing populations and decreasing standards, but there's never been increasing standards and decreasing population. Because basically, the more people you have, the more minds you have, the more of a market you have, etc. So we have no evidence, no experience with increasing standards and decreasing population. So do you think our standards will potentially decrease when the population goes down? So one idea is, that's one idea. Or the second idea is we have to have a new kind of a capitalism or a new kind of a market. Third idea is, well, we make artificial mines. Yeah, it was. And they will buy stuff or, you know, who knows? The main point is that we're in uncharted territory that we don't know. Because imagine this, you're in a business where every year, there's fewer and fewer people to buy. You have fewer and fewer workers to work on it. You, your market is smaller and smaller, no, yeah. matter, no matter what. No matter what, yeah. So, like, how do you increase prosperity over time? And so AI may be part of that. Maybe. But you and I will be dead by then, so it's your problem now. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, thank you so hey, much. it was really great. Likewise. Really great. Thank you. Really interesting stuff. Super fascinating guy and super fascinating research. Really, AI being the thing we add to everything, just like electricity was the thing we added to uh, all of our machines, that's big news. And the fact that that's happening in our lifetime is really something special. So I hope to hear of a few of you future billionaires building something that includes AI. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget you can thank Kevin on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including the book, The Inevitable. You can tap our 
album art. That's a little picture of me and AJ in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. And we link to the show notes directly on your phone. I'm also on Twitter. I post a lot of stuff that never makes it to the show. Articles, insights, other ways to engage with me and producer Jason. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Our boot camps are live programs taking place here in LA. That's at bootcamp.theartofcharm. We sell out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch with us, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And yes, I know a lot of you overseas, but bear in mind right now, we've got people from Europe, Australia, and Asia, as well as the US and Canada. So that can't really be your excuse anymore. And if it is, well, you shouldn't believe it because I sure don't. I also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or if you're in the U.S., text charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show. I also do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed here in the U.S. to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.